0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. We were hoping to have you in person, but that's what a lockdown does. Now, you grew up in a small New South Wales coastal town before moving to Sydney to pursue a career in journalism. Nicola soon found herself writing her debut novel, Catch Us, the Foxes, about a grisly small town murder and a young journalist who covers the story of her best friend's murder. Nicola was one of eight young writers who took part in Express Media's 2018 Toolkits Fiction Program. She was also chosen for the 2019 Australian Society of Authors Award Mentorship Program, where best-selling author Monica McInerney mentored her. I mean, how lucky are you? I know, especially with Monica,
2: she is truly the patron saint of authors and was just the most encouraging person I have ever met. And I I genuinely don't think that this book would have been published without her support and input and just she championed it like
0: nobody else. Sometimes I think that she loves the book more than I do. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Do you know, I find that with Australian writers, you know, they really are very, very supportive of each other. Monica McInerney in particular, but so many more. I mean, a lot of the writers, the rural romance writers over in Western Australia, they hang out together, they support each other. So I see that a lot in this country. I was in New York once back in the day where we could travel. And I was talking to some authors there, and they said they didn't have the same camaraderie. They actually didn't know if an author was living five doors down anyway. And it's really interesting. I often wonder if it's just an Australian thing. However, I won't be naming names. But I did speak to an author recently in a podcast, and she said to me, "I don't want to talk about other authors." And I was like, "Whoa! Oh, that wow. is the first time I've heard that. That is the first time I have been doing this job. Like I have been in." books, you know, my entire career over 30 years. And it's the first time I'd heard a comment like that. And it really ticked me off, actually.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh,
0: I'm very, I'm curious now. I shouldn't no. be, but I am. No, no, I, won't, <laughs> I won't be outing her, it, but it's definitely not Monica McInerney. She's a real superstar. And I follow her on Instagram and I notice she just championed so many writers. Now, wow. Um, it's really quite an extraordinary debut fiction novel. It's been described as Twin Peaks meets The Dry. Tell me, I want to know how how it is that you came to writing. Tell me about growing up in a small town, particularly a coastal town, because I think that has a different feel to, say, inland or a country area. Talk to me about your childhood and growing up and where the love of reading and writing came from.
2: Um, The love of reading and writing 100% came from my mum. I was an only child. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I think that that's the thing that only children tend to be a bit more insular and a bit more, you know, having to entertain themselves and stuff like that. So my mum always fostered me having this huge imagination and, you know, she she would always encourage me. She she herself is a brilliant storyteller and my childhood was just filled with her wild (laughs) stories. And she really encouraged me to create my own wild stories as well. So it was something that was just intrinsic to my childhood and intrinsic to me as a person, was sort of living in this very heavily populated um, internal realm uh, because I was an only child and, you know, sometimes you have to keep yourself company. But it was just something that was always there and she taught me reading before... I hit even infant school or anything like that. It was was something that she is very, very passionate about and something that she really wanted to instill in me, which she she 100% did. Reading has always been a huge part of my life and at the time used it as a bit of a form of escapism from being an only child. But then in my teenage years, I actually developed a severe medical condition and was spending... Months and months in hospital and stuff like that, and having I'm sorry books. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. It uh, helped helped inspire this book. So you know, silver linings and all that. But that that's the thing that that form of escape. You know, when you, when you are in hospital for months on end by yourself, and you know you're you're a kid, you really need that. And that was something that just became part of my life, and it's something that. I want to be able to pass on to other people that form of escapism. I mean, we're in lockdown right now. Obviously, that's not not the best thing to have your debut novel coming out <laughs> during a lockdown. But I really hope that it can act as a bit of an escape for people who are stuck at home at the moment. And you know, this, this is this the last thing we all want. But um, I, I I do feel slightly bad that it's not not the most heartfelt nice and cozy read it's a bit of a creepy read so so maybe people you know aren't looking for that but I I do hope that it, it gives people a bit of that escapism and I hope that people get to you know travel down to Kayama from the comfort of their homes and uh see how beautiful it is but uh just remember that the story is not necessarily reflective of the actual town and hopefully when the lockdown is over everybody can go down there and see it for themselves
0: It's a beautiful part of the world. I'm going to tell you this to reassure you. Um, Pip Williams launched the Dictionary of Lost Words in the first two weeks of COVID.
2: Yes, I do know that. And, and okay, A, a lot of people have been
0: <laughs> trying to reassure me. So, you know, we don't we don't spiral out of control too much. Hang in there because I've got to say, you know, people have taken solace in reading. A lot of people have come to reading. It's a good time for books and reading. So, you know, um, hopefully it will find its way in its place. And I think it, it deserves to as well. Oh, thank you. So, you grew up, um, do you know, I've heard a lot of, and you might have heard me talk about this, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, a lot of writers that I speak to have started writing and were avid readers because of similar situations, like you being an only child. Not that it was, you know, adversity or terrible. It was that they had to, they were in situations, like some people grew up, you know, they had siblings, but they were on a remote property or, you know, whatever the story was. There was always something, I think, with writers, not all of them, but a lot of them, where they had to look inwards to find story. And lucky for us, (laughs) that has happened and they did. And so it seems to be a thread that I see in the way that writers come to be. I guess, you know, for a reader, it's fantastic. But talk to me about that, being an only child. That is... Not just in terms of reading and writing, but tell me how it was. Like, how did you, when you're at school, did you often think that? I'm just trying to understand it because I come from a family of six and what I would would have given as (laughs) being only child, (laughs) because I hated sharing everything with everybody. I mean, as I've grown older, I've seen the value. But at the time when I was sharing, because, you know, we were, immigrants to this country and we were quite poor. My parents didn't have a lot of money. I had to share a bed with my sister for years, a bed. And I would see kids at our school that had a bedroom to themselves. So talk to me about that. Did you have those sorts of feelings going the other way? No, I i was actually, I was quite an a no,
2: obnoxious and precocious little brat, to be 100% honest. And I really relished being an only child. (laughs) And, you know, I I never wanted brothers or sisters or anything like that. It it was to the extent that I told my parents they weren't allowed to, which is horrible. (laughs) But no, it, it was something that I always appreciated because I think that obviously how I was raised and without siblings and that sort of thing helped foster my personality, but but I have always been a very independent person, a very insular person, so that I didn't necessarily need that, and has that camaraderie.
0: Has that changed as you've gotten older? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah, that, wow. I love that, your honesty. I love that.
2: <laughs> maybe a bit too honest, but um, no, it's actually, I'm actually severely immunocompromised. So I have only left my apartment my apartment complex twice in the past 15 months, and that is to get each of my b- vaccines. Oh. So the the very last time before getting the vaccines that I left my apartment, which was just before lockdown happened, was when I was meeting with the publishers to determine who was going to publish my book and Simon and & Schuster were the last people that we met. And then, yeah, lockdown happened. And for
0: me, it was a huge, huge issue because of my health problems. So but was that, it an issue even though you weren't you're already locked down in a way? Because
2: it's what I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. Not really. That's the thing. Like it it's been that there's certainly things that I miss. And obviously I have friends and loved ones who I, I miss terribly and greeting them as they're standing, yeah, 1.5 meters away from my door, like dropping stuff off and saying hi to me and stuff like that. And we're both fully masked. That that's not Um, the funnest thing in the world and I do obviously miss them and I miss just going out and doing things around Sydney but no it's something that I think that for anybody else it would have been a huge struggle mentally but for me I've kind of thrived with it and I was very fortunate that this hugely positive thing happened in me signing my first book and a second book deal as well and I was able to just run headfirst into that. So I've actually written two books in the time since I went into lockdown and I'm just so grateful that I had that opportunity to be able to do that and I'm not sure how it would have been if I didn't have that outlet. Maybe it would have been something that I struggled with more but having that outlet was just this wonderful thing and it it just became a sort of full circle, circle moment that I was coming back to hey because of my circumstances you know either being an only child or me being in hospital for months and months and months on end it was this this outlet for me and this escape for me that I haven't left these four walls basically. Mm. And How did you get published? Talk to me about that. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a bit of an odd story but I was actually writing a memoir about my health problems and, and that side of things and I decided to do the Faber Academy's Writing True Stories course with mm-hmm. Patty Miller. Fantastic. Who, just amazing, amazing person. And, and the course is amazing mm-hmm. as well. So I wholeheartedly recommend it. But quite strangely, that's what led me to write my fiction novel because I, I went there and I was writing about, you know, my sub story and all this very, very intense stuff. But I knew that deep down, I always wanted to write fiction. But I also knew how difficult it is to get published in this country as a debut author especially with zero author platform or anything like that so i was sort of like well if i write the memoir maybe i can then shift and prove to people you know that i can do this but through party support and the rest of my uh, classmates support who were all just wonderful as well um it made me realize that it wasn't just my sob story that was compelling it was my writing as well and so they encouraged me to be able to Switch to the genre that I actually did want to write. And that's when I switched to writing Catch Us, what would become Catch Us the Foxes. And then through that, that was how I landed a place on tool, Toolkits Fiction. I, I pitched sort of the first, I think, couple of chapters, and I was able to write the first draft with Via Toolkits Fiction and Jennifer Down, who was also just incredible. And then that helped me land the ASA Award Mentorship Program. And so I was able to go through the editing process with Monica McInerney. And then through her support and championing and just wonderfulness, uh, she ended up getting me in contact with an agent at Curtis Brown, who eventually offered me representation, and then put it out there into the world. There was a bidding war for it, which was just utterly surreal it was very, very difficult decision between the final two publishers, but I wholeheartedly believe that I made the right choice because Simon and Schuster just get this book like nobody else. It's, it's mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. And they, they were so supportive. Absolutely. So yeah. yeah, that was kind of the whole process.
3: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Tell me about
0: your journalism career, because it is writing, as we all know, but it is a very different style of writing, isn't
2: it? Yeah, definitely. And also because it was journalism and copywriting as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a lot of different styles, but I think that it really prepares you in that that's the thing like you hear of so many debut authors who do have a journalism background. And I, I do think that it's something that really sets you up and it gives you the discipline. And for me, journalism is a bit of a loose term for for what I was doing. I was certainly not doing news journalism or anything like that. I was doing magazine stuff type um a lot of fashion writing and a bit of tabloid writing as well which wasn't my favorite thing in the world but um we 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 take what we can get and
0: make a living right
2: yeah but through that um I was doing a lot of stuff for the online issues and websites for different magazines and stuff like that so it was the priority was obviously the print magazines so I was sort of left to my own devices and it was me just having to churn out content, especially with the tabloid stuff that's very, you know, breaking news and that sort of thing. It's just constantly having to churn out this content day after day after day. And I think that it makes you a lot less precious about your writing if you have those time constraints, if you've just got to get this stuff out as quickly as possible. And
0: I think that for... It's the practice of writing, isn't
2: it? Yeah, you just, you get into a flow with it. And then when suddenly you don't have those constraints on you, it just feels effortless. And this, this you know, real joyful thing that you can do. And I always found that writing the memoir stuff, it was a bit akin to pulling teeth. But as soon as I started the the fiction, it was just, it's just so much more fun. <laughs> there's, there's no way, other way to say it. It's just, it, it's, I my favourite part of this entire process is just me sitting
0: down and writing. Mm. Wow. So there is a little bit of fact in every fiction, as we all know, and the main character in the book is a journalist and her father is a policeman, is that right? Yes. And does that ring true?
2: <laughs> yes, that, that rings um, unnervingly true. Yeah. Uh, my my dad is a police officer yeah. Um in, in the small town that I grew up in and his father was a police officer and then my great-grandfather was a police officer. So, oh, it, it's wow. I did defi- know that. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely something that has permeated just every aspect of my life and it kind of became a no-brainer. Like I love crime fiction and, you know, I was reading Jeffrey Deaver and James Patterson novels from – being 12 years old, which, you know, might not be the most appropriate thing. But there's a quote in the the book that Marlowe says that her father used to leave old co- copies of the police journal around the house, which has all these brilliant articles about different crime scenes, but it also has the most horrific crime scene photos imaginable. And that actually is based on my own life. I, I later found out that it wasn't my dad's fault. It was actually my mum who was leaving those around the house for me to find. But the quote in the book says, you know, one person's early childhood trauma is another's career catalyst. And that that's something that very much rings true for me. And at the time, I thought that that meant that I wanted to be a crime reporter. But it, that, that's a bit too gruesome for me. I much prefer the imaginary type. <laughs>
0: Did you ever think of going to the police force?
2: Not in a million years at all. Uh, I, it's, uh, yeah, not something for me. And I, I do think that if you do grow up as a police officer's family member in any capacity, uh, you you see things about the job that are really quite horrible. Um, we, so tough. Oh, yeah, 100%. But I've had multiple threats against my life at, at one stage, my mum and I had our own police radios in the house and our own call signal to go over the radio. So if we said this call signal, it would mean, you know, the Wests are in trouble, you've got to get to their house, you know, somebody's trying to break in because there was a credible threat and in the end the person did break in. Fortunately, I wasn't home. But it's something that I don't think a lot of people realize and I, I can understand
0: definitely I'm blown away because I was just going to say and showing my ignorance you know how much policing does a police officer do in a small coastal town it must, <laughs> yeah. and then you tell me that
2: well it's also my dad previously worked for a bigger town
0: right. that was
2: still close by and that that was when all this sort of stuff was happening that's a thing that even, you know, take Kayama. It's not, there is a police station at Kayama, but it's not manned 24 7. There's a close by police station, uh, like Illawarra, and that services all these sort of smaller towns. So it, it's not really, you know, in, in the way it is in TV shows and movies and stuff like that, where it is just sort of like one cop running this very, very small station. It's actually these huge networks, mm. and they then filter through
0: basically you know there's been a lot of conversation because of the US about police um, and you know those conversations about defund the police etc one I think in Australia things are very very different the way that we culturally the way that we see law and order I guess but on a personal level I just have always grown up with the utmost respect and probably a bit of fear. Like, I am not the person that's going to disrespect a police officer because I often ask myself why, and I think it's because of the way I was brought up. Even the other day, two, two or three days ago when, when we were out and about, I was at a set of lights and, a you know, a, a policeman in a highway patrol bike pulled up beside me. I was so nervous. <laughs> it's an adult doing absolutely nothing wrong yeah Stop. you know there is a part of me that has a nervousness and a fear but also what i did think about because i thought about it later my reaction there is a comfort level too i feel that they are protectors of us talk to me about your uh, what did you feel around you particularly being the daughter of a policeman how did people respond um,
2: it's certainly complicated and that's the thing I can wholeheartedly understand You know what, what's happening in the States and the, the conversations around that. And I do think that it's a systemic issue and I do think that the Australian police force has a systemic issue with racism mm-hmm. and those types of things. It, it's a bit difficult growing up with it because there, there's been things that I have seen that I haven't liked at all. Mm. And, but then there have been other things that I've seen that it's just sort of like, well, I don't think that the general public necessarily get the, the full picture of certain things. And as I said, something as simple as, you know, my family having this police scanner because there, there was this credible threat and the credible threat was only because my father was a police officer. Mm. Um, I, I think that you're not exposed to those sorts of things. But in saying that, I do also wholeheartedly understand that there are perhaps issues there. And I do think that it is difficult as a police officer's daughter to perhaps, you know, agree with that sentiment while still being supportive of my family and and that
0: side of things. Mm. I was just thinking maybe Indigenous people don't think the way I do. You know, like I often think at least in this country, if you call the police, you know, you're calling the police. Whereas, you know, from what I've seen what what's happening in the U.S. I mean, how do you call the police on the police, you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe it's it's not just, you know, that's just how I'm feeling because I'm in, in a city, you know, and from a position of privilege, I guess. Okay, so I would imagine that, you know, being in that environment, you know, the law and order and, and kind of over generations, that there are so many stories, not just reading the police journal. Do you think some of your writing came from that?
2: Um yeah in a way my dad is I don't I don't know if when I'm saying you know oh my mom's a brilliant storyteller and and that sort of thing my my dad is too he can definitely spin a yarn but god there's a lot of them and oh they go on (laughs) but uh no yeah it's it's something that I have constantly heard. And and even now, you know, he's, he's constantly telling me stories and stuff like that. And it's very interesting to view them now through the lens of, you know, me writing crime and sort of, you know, seeing little kernels in there and picking them up. And, but in this instance with the book, the book does uh, make use of a bit of urban legend and folklore and, Real life crimes, but not necessarily ones that have come from my dad. Like a really big one is surrounding satanic panic in the '90s and that sort of thing, and the Wollongong Mayor Frank Harkell being, you know, ritualistically slayed in the most horrific way imaginable, and you know all the the satanic elements of that. And because of that was something that I was hoping to explore in the book, you know, these sorts of culty elements. It's more that side of thing rather than actual stuff that my dad has said, oh, hey, this story. Um, have they read the book? Have your parents read the book? My mum has read the book. My dad has
1: not
0: read the book just yet. <laughs> um, we're, and we're still... What did she think? I reckon that would be hard, not being a writer, because I think, you know, and of course it's fiction, but there is always, you know, as we know, um, some of yourself in your writing. Did Were you nervous about your mum reading it? yes
2: <laughs> wholeheartedly yes um and it was interesting though because she is such a voracious reader and she reads so much crime that it wasn't just you know the pressure of oh god this is set in the you know the town that we grew up in, I grew up in and you know they're still in it was also the pressure of she she knows her stuff so but no she she was wonderfully wonderfully supportive with it and um yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate that my family are quite laid back about this kind of thing. So I, as it gets closer to the publication and the more interviews I'm doing and stuff like that, where I am talking about them, it, it does make me go, oh, this is, you know, maybe this wasn't the, the best thing like that. Maybe. I didn't put them in the best position, but we have had multiple conversations about it and me, you know, double checking, are, are you guys okay with everything? And, and is this okay? And it was something as simple as the marketing and publicity department sent me something that they're, they're, they're potentially going to be running and it named Kayama in it, which the the book names Kayama, that's completely fine, but they, they you know, imply that... Kayama has a killer secret and it's obviously referring to the book not to the actual real town that exists. So it, it was stuff like that having to run it past my parents going like are you guys comfortable with this because I'm fine. I'm in Sydney. I'm still, you know, locked down. I can't can't get anywhere. But for my parents, you know, they're still out in you the know? community and stuff like that. So, but fortunately, they've been really really supportive and I think that they're they're used to uh this aspect of my personality and that side of things, so it's not not too surprising for them.
0: Um, let me tell you a funny story. You know the fabulous crime writer Michael Robotham, yes, who I adore. Um, he told me this story um, a few years back that when his first book came out, he gave it to his mum, who was a ferocious reader, and and then the next time he saw her, he was really nervous, and you know he didn't know what she thought. He's like, "Oh, you know, mum, did you read my book?" And she's like, "No, not yet." And he's like. <laughs> oh okay and she said it's on my pile it's just not up next do you want me to move it up to the top of the list and he's like, yeah maybe <laughs> that's hilarious oh, I love God. that story I yeah. love that like yeah she's gonna read it but she's got to finish all her other books <laughs> anyway I always wonder. he's isn't he a great writer
2: oh phenomenal
0: yeah yeah really good I think he's got a book coming out soon he does he does quite Um, excited for it (laughs) yeah um so does it all feel real
2: no not not at all and I I do think that my circumstances have probably amplified that in the sense that the entire publishing process at least from my end has taken place in these four walls yeah so that is something that is just I I still can't really wrap my head around it and obviously we've I've received the physical editions you know receiving the arc and then receiving the the final book that will actually be on the shelves and you know I really thought that holding it in my hands would be like you know this is it this is real this is happening but I I sort of gave myself a bit of a deadline and I was like it will feel real when I see it in stores Mm -hmm. and now I'm not going to be able to see it in stores, so I'm...
0: you'll have to get stores to send you photos. Yes. I guess you could uh, you could have a project down the track: how to write a book in lockdown.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's mm.
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> how to write a book and get it published. Anyway, Nicola West, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our chat today. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
3: That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.